Hello and welcome to the Hope City Church podcast. We're always so encouraged to know that God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please send a message to lifechange at hopecityonline.net. Now, let's prepare our hearts for a powerful message out of God's Word. Now, for those of you who are just joining us this morning, we have been in a series well, it's self-explanatory, called The Life of Job. And what we've been doing is, over the course of the summer, we've been looking at this guy in the Scriptures that we feel like have really gotten a bad rap. Because when everybody thinks about Job, they think about problems. When everybody thinks about Job, they think about life falling apart. And those things are very true, but they're only true for a season of Job's life. They're not indicative of the life of Job. When you go and read chapter 1 of the book of Job, you become very, very keenly aware of the fact that Job was a very blessed man in just about every area of his life. And then when you flip to the last part, chapter 42 of Job, you see that he lived out the rest of his days very, very blessed, even, in fact, more blessed than he was in the beginning. But there's this one season where he struggles. There's this one season where everything falls apart, and we get to see how he interacts with that season of his life. But it's not indicative of his life. Job was a very blessed man that experienced a lot of hope all throughout his life. And one of the things that we've been uncovering is that the hope that we have in God is not contingent on the circumstances of our life because God is bigger than our circumstances. The hope that Job had in God at the beginning, the hope that Job had at the end is the same hope that he carried in God in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his difficulty. And so we're learning how we can experience and have that same hope. Too. Now, to do that, I want to I point out something. I don't know if you guys are aware of this. Most of you are, but I'm a dad of a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old. I love my kids to death. They are uh, my, my world, my life. Like, we do everything together. We have a lot of fun. And one of the, my, my favorite things to do with my kids is to play um, not, not jokes like, like pranks on them, but to do like magic tricks, to do things that trick them into where they're like, oh, that's so cool, Dad. Um, because I can't get away with it with adults most of the time. I'm not that quick. Um, but, but my kids, I can get away with stuff. Like I can do this right here, and they're freaking out, like losing their mind, like, oh, my gosh, he tore his finger off. Like I love doing that kind of stuff with my kids because they're shocked and amazed at the stuff that I can do. And so it's, it's um, validating for me as a dad to be able to do that kind of stuff. I told my son, Caleb, who's just now old enough to where he's getting pretty good at math, um, I told him this, this little trick and showed him this little trick the other day. And I wanted to share it with you guys um, to see if you guys could track with it and, and, and catch on to what's happening here. And he thought it was the coolest thing ever. And let's see if you guys think it's cool too. So here's what I want you to do. I want everybody in the room to think of a number between 1 and 10. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell the person beside you. But everybody, now you got to be a little bit good at math, but not, not great at math. This is like second grade math, okay? So everybody think of a number between 1 and 10. Everybody got their number in their head? Yes? All right, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that number, and I want you to double it. Okay, you got that? Whatever that number was, I want you to double it. Everybody got it? You're tracking so far? Okay, now I want you to add 8 to that number. Everybody good still? You, you, you tracking? Yes? Yes? Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that number, and I want you to cut it in half. Cut it in half. Okay, we still tracking? All right. And now I want you to subtract your original number from that number. And you should have a new number. Everybody have a new number? 
Just shake your head yes. Let's make sure we're all tracking. That new number should be somewhere between 1 and 10. Shake your head yes if that's right. Is it? Okay, okay, we're good. All right, so everybody's got that number. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that number, and I want you to correspond it to a letter in the alphabet. So 1 would be A, 2 would be B, 3 would be You guys tracking with that? So figure out what your letter is and get that letter in your head. Don't tell me. Don't tell the person beside you. Just get that letter in your head. Okay, everybody's got that letter in their head. The letter that goes with that number in order. Okay, everybody's got that letter. Now, here's what I want you to do. This is where it gets a little bit more complicated. I want you to think of a country in the world that starts with that letter. Country in the world that starts with that letter. You got it? Everybody got their country? Some of you are going, I wasn't good at geography. I can't think of a country that starts with that letter. Everybody think of a country that starts with that letter. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the next letter in the alphabet, the next letter in the alphabet, and think of an animal that starts with that letter letter think of an animal that starts with that letter okay you got it everybody got their animal and now i want you to think of the color of that particular animal everybody's got that everybody's tracking okay the problem is there are no gray elephants in denmark yeah and so (laughs) and so i did that to my son and he's freaking out he's losing his mind he thinks it's like hocus pocus witchcraft Okay, how, did I, how many of you, did I get it right? Yes? Okay. If, if, if I didn't get it right, don't worry. We'll give you your money back on the way out. I'm sorry. But I love doing <laughs> I've lost you now. You're all going to be talking, explaining how it works. Like, literally, there's going to be a wife 15 minutes from now that passes a note to her husband that says, explain that to me. And then you're going to be writing it down. Anyway. Um, now, I love doing that kind of stuff with my kids. Those are the moments that, that are fun for me as a dad. But I'll tell you the moments that are the worst for me as a dad. And it's probably because of the kind of person I am, probably because of my personality. The moments that are worst for me as a dad is when I have to punish my kids. When they get in trouble. I love the moments when I get to play with them. I love the moments when we get to do games. But the moment that I have to be the disciplinarian in the house is bad news for them. And it's bad news for me. Because I hated being disciplined growing up. And so I hate giving discipline out now that my kids are here. Like it's just one of those things that I can't stand. And the other day I caught my seven-year-old Caleb in a lie. And it's one of the worst situations when you fully catch them in a lie. And they know that you've caught them in a lie. See, here's the deal. My seven-year-old right now now he finds complete and utter validation in life in my and my wife's approval of him and his behavior and when we don't approve of him or his behavior like he breaks down he melts down and he does everything in his power to try to logically explain his behavior so that we understand where he's coming from so that we won't be disappointed in him but the other day I caught him he said that he didn't do something and then I asked him about something that happened in the room that he was in that he claimed he wasn't even in that room and he told me what happened in that room and so I called him I said well what were you doing in that room I thought you said you weren't in that room and in that moment like you could just see like sheer terror and panic on his face like I am caught and he started doing this thing when my son starts to get emotional um, his nose starts jumping up and down so he's like 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 this right here it's like he smelled somebody pass gas and he's not sure who it was and so he's just like like this right here. And so he, he starts doing that, and I could tell it was coming, and immediately he just lost it, right? He's crying. He's so upset. And he's not doing it, like, in a sneaky way. Like, if I cry hard enough, they'll feel bad for me, and I won't get in trouble. Like, he legitimately is, like, from his heart upset because he feels like he's let mom down. He feels like he's let dad down, and he doesn't have that validation based on his behavior anymore. And so in that moment, I remember exactly what happened. He lost it. He was crying. He was upset. He ran up the stairs 
upstairs and he was gone and he slammed the door to his room and you could just hear him wailing from the other side of the house. He was so, so upset. And I looked at my wife and I was like, what is this kid's problem? And she's like, I don't know. And the more and more I've gotten to think about that moment, the more and more I've begun to realize that we do and we live and we think the exact same way, particularly in the area of our spiritual journey, particularly in the area of our spiritual life, we feel like that we've got to do good to earn God's approval. We feel like that we've got to do good to earn pastor's approval and other Christians' approval. We feel like that we've got to do good to earn the people in our life that we care about's approval. And when we don't get their approval or when we feel like we've let them down, it wrecks us. And so we end up spending a majority of our life working really hard to try to find approval from someone or something or some God. We, we work really hard. And when we don't attain whatever it was that we were attempting to do, it wrecks us and it messes us up. And we end up being left feeling guilty or frustrated. And that's exactly, that's exactly the sentiment that takes place throughout the majority of the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, everything's great. Job chapter 2, everything is falling apart. Life is totally messed up, and it seems like there's no way out. And then we see from Job chapter 3 all the way through Job chapter 41, Job pouring his heart out to God, trying to figure out what he did wrong to deserve all of this. We see Job's friends showing up on the scene, trying to figure out what Job did wrong to deserve all of this. Because we live in a society that's a performance-based society. Humanity has always been performance-based. And when things don't go right in our lives, we feel like it's because we haven't measured up. We haven't gained the approval of someone, some God, or something. And that's why our life has fallen apart. There's a particular passage of Job, which is really indicative of this whole thing. And I want you to look at it with me this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. And this will be uh, reminiscent of, of what you experience in your own life. Now, this is going to be tough for you to follow along with because I'm going to be reading this out of a paraphrased translation called The Message. And so what I'd like for you to do is if you have your Bible, just mark this. If you've got one of those cool, like, leather-bound Bibles that have the little string thing, like take the string thing and pull it down and mark this to look at or read later. If you don't have one of those, if you're following along on your smartphone or tablet, just um, highlight this, bookmark this, and look at it later. But I want to read to you exactly what was happening because Job has been pouring his heart out. His friends have been showing up trying to figure out what's going on. And then this guy kind of summarizes the whole thing. It's Job chapter 11, picking it up in verse 1. It says, Bildad from Shuha was next to speak. And he says this, how can you, and he's talking to Job, how can you keep on talking like this? Because Job's lost everything. So he's rambling and he's frustrated and he's upset and, and he's going on and on and on. And he says, how can you keep on talking like this? You're talking nonsense and noisy nonsense at that. Does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backward? It's plain, and look at this, it's plain that your children sinned against him. Otherwise, why would God have punished them? See, we're going back thousands of years in a completely different culture. And the same thing that happens today in your life and in my life is happening here. Things are going terrible. Things are going wrong. We must not have measured up to what God wanted for our life. And because we weren't good enough, because we didn't perform well enough, because we had negative or bad things in our life, God judged us, God punished us, or God was indifferent towards us, and he allowed our lives to fall apart. 
And that's exactly what this guy is saying here. He's saying, your kids were killed. They must have done something wrong. Because that was the culture then, and it's still the culture now. Here's what he says you must do. And don't put it off any longer. Get down on your knees before God Almighty. If you're as innocent and upright as you say, it's not too late. He'll come running. He'll set everything right again. Reestablish your fortunes. Even though you're not much right now, you'll end up better than ever. He had no idea how right what he was saying was, but the motivation for what he was saying couldn't have been any more wrong. Because the idea was, your life's falling apart, you're losing everything, nothing's going your way, and it's your fault. The answer to your problems is to come back to God, repent, say you're sorry, and then try to measure up again. As if God's up in heaven keeping score, and every time you fail, bolt of lightning. Every time you fail, tornado comes through. Every time you fail, the mortgage drops out and you're not able to pay for your house. Every time you fail, something goes wrong. And we read that and we go, well, that's not God. That's not how God is. That's not what God's like. But let's be honest. Do all too often we not live with the exact same pressure? That we've got to measure up somehow. And if we don't measure up, somehow God will take away something from our life. Let me tell you where this is most prevalent. And it's so sad this is most prevalent. It's in the Bible Belt among followers of Jesus. Because once we receive the gift of salvation, we have this assumption or this idea that somehow we've got to measure up to this gift that we've been given. We've got to measure up to the gift that we've received. And and because we feel that way, we end up spending our entire life frustrated because we don't measure up and we keep messing up. Or guilty over the fact that we just can't seem to get there. And it's why so many people come to church, they try really hard for six months or a year out of their life, and then they fall away and never come back. Because they either get frustrated or guilty that they can't measure up to the standard that God has set. And they just assume that their life is just going to be garbage because they aren't good enough. We still live this exact same way today. And seriously, if you take the time to go and read the book of Job, you'll see that for literally 30 plus chapters, it's this dialogue over and over. Why did this happen? You must have done something wrong. You better repent. You better fix this. Somebody did something wrong somewhere along the way to make this happen in your life. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. And everybody's trying to get in the mind and the head of God and assumes that it has something to do with their behavior. Guys, this, I threw this up there last minute, so this verse is not going to be on the screens for you. But it's, it's fascinating that this continues all the way through the time of Jesus, even among his closest followers. In John chapter 9, verse 1, I'll just read it to you. It won't be on the screen. It says, as he, Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples, not Pharisees, not people who were far from him, not pagans, the guys who were hanging out closest to Jesus, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man Or his parents, that he was born blind. They were asking whose performance didn't measure up. Who who didn't do good enough? Who didn't hold the standard well enough? And it's the same thought process carrying on even among the people who are following Jesus the closest. That somehow... When things fall apart in your life, it has to do with your behavior. And this is rooted in 
a lot of different world religions, including the Judeo-Christian faith. In a lot of different world religions, they believe in this thing called karma. And that is, you know, what goes around comes around. But this is also rooted in our faith. You reap what you sow, right? You, you, you plant a bad seed, you're going to get a bad seed. If you have a bad performance, you're going to have bad circumstances. If you, if, you, if you commit bad behavior, you're going to have a bad situation. If you do good, good things will happen. And it's this idea that's been around in just about every major religion, including ours. Because it's true. The problem is, is that system of truth doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's true that you reap what you sow. You do bad things, you'll find yourself in bad situations. You do good things, you'll find yourself in better, more healthy situations. The problem is, is everybody in this room falls short, and that system doesn't work for any of us. Because if that system rang true for all of us, if that's the system that we lived under, it wouldn't just be Job that would be screwed. It wouldn't just be this blind guy that Jesus healed that was screwed. It would be all of us. Because none of us measure up to God's standard of perfection. Thousands upon thousands of years ago, God was in perfect relationship with mankind. And when mankind said, you know what, we want to do things our own way by our own standard, we broke that relationship. We broke that perfection that we had with God. And there's nothing that we have the capacity or the ability to do to get it back. There's no amount of good that we can do because it won't be good enough for us to get to the place where we experience God's love firsthand again. It's why I love, it's why I love the picture that the gospel of Jesus paints for you and for me. Because God's favor on your life And God's favor on my life is no longer rooted in our performance or our behavior or our ability to accomplish anything. Our experiential life under the blessing of God's favor is rooted solely and completely in the finished work and person of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross on your behalf and mine. It's a completely different perspective the problem is those of us that are raised in church those of us that have been around church and I I, I use that term church loosely those of us that have been around church and church people we sit under the shadow of the cross every Sunday we sit under the teaching of the gospel every Sunday we hear about the freedom that Christ has afforded us and provides us and how he has done the work that we couldn't do and, and, and because of his work on the cross we can be free from the weight of feeling like we have to measure up or perform to a certain standard to earn God's favor and yet we walk out the door and try we try to measure up We try to live up to God's standard. We try to do all the right things. And when we don't, we carry the weight of frustration and guilt on our shoulders. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so when we carry that weight, the weight that we're carrying isn't the weight of Jesus. We've missed the mark somewhere. Where do we miss it? Well, to illustrate that, I want to read to you a, a passage of Scripture found in John chapter 8. But before I read to you the specific verse, I want to kind of set up the story for you. Jesus has made his way into the temple 
Um, and th- basically, he's made his way into an area where people for, for hundreds of years have come and they've made sacrifices for their sins, for their mistakes. Basically, he makes his way into a place where people literally all the time showed up and tried to perform for God's favor. They showed up and tried to earn God's approval by doing something, by doing what it was that he had commanded or said originally to do. And so we see Jesus in this place where people are trying to perform for the approval of God. And early in the morning when Jesus walks into the temple, the religious leaders bring to Jesus a woman who's been caught in adultery. Now it's fascinating that this takes place early in the morning. Because I doubt very seriously that the religious leaders were hanging out outside her door, like just waiting, waiting, waiting. Sun came up, busted in, grabbed her, and then took her straight to the temple to Jesus. Now, that's not what happened. See, what happened was is they had caught this woman in adultery sometime earlier, sometime earlier in the night, sometime the night before. And they recognized that this was a perfect opportunity to trap Jesus, to put Jesus in a situation that he wouldn't be able to get out of. And so they kept this woman on reserve. They kept her locked in a cell. And then early in the morning, the moment that Jesus walks in the temple, they say, get her, get her, get her. He's here. It's time. We can trap him and finally get him. And here's why. Because Jesus had been going around preaching about freedom. And Jesus had been going around preaching about grace and mercy and compassion. And this woman had blatantly disregarded the law of Moses. And the law of Moses said that she should be stoned. So they thought they could finally put Jesus in a position where he would contradict himself. So they bring the woman to Jesus, and that's what they said. They said, the law of Moses, Rabbi, says that we should stone this woman. What do you say? I love the way that Jesus responds, and it's a familiar passage, whether you've been raised in church or not. It says that Jesus um, knelt down on the ground and started writing in the sand. And there's a lot of debate over what it was that Jesus was writing in the sand. And we've talked about what I think Jesus was writing in the sand here. I'm convinced that Jesus just started writing somebody's name and the sins that they had committed in their life. And somebody else's name and the sins that they committed in their life. And so Jesus starts writing in the sand. And he stands up and he says these words. You who are without sin can cast the first stone. You who is without sin can cast the first stone. The story goes that from the oldest to the youngest, the people began dropping their rocks and walking away. Now, there was one there who was without sin. And it's fascinating that he was the only one not holding a stone. Usually, it's the people who are most guilty and carrying the most weight of their own shortcomings that are the quickest to throw rocks at others for theirs. So all the people drop their stones and walk away. And that's where we pick it up in John chapter 8, verse 10. Scripture says this, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus had every right to condemn this woman. She had been caught in adultery. She was guilty 
and she deserved the punishment that they were begging Jesus practically to cast upon her. But that's the beauty of grace. The beauty of grace says, you don't measure up. You're guilty. You're not good enough. You're not going to be good enough. Hey, tomorrow on Monday, even after coming to Hope City Church on Sunday, guess what you're going to do? You're going to screw this thing up. You're not good enough to do this thing on your own. There's nothing you can do to earn my approval. The only one who has the authority and the right to cast a stone is the one who has committed no sin, the one who is perfect. And he's not in the business of casting stones. He's in the business of setting people free. You could never do enough to earn God's favor. You could never do enough to earn God's favor. And you could never make enough mistakes to lose it because you aren't the one who affords it anyway. The guy who affords God's favor for you and for me, his name is Jesus, and he's already done enough good, and he never makes mistakes. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God doesn't rain down terror on our lives because of our mistakes. And we don't have to carry the weight of feeling like we've got to measure up in order for blessings to flow into our lives. Because the gospel has freed us from both the condemnation of our sin and the weight of feeling like we've got to measure up to God's standard of perfection. So then the question becomes, because I know this is kind of where everybody's at at the moment. Man, that's good. That feels really good. That's nice preaching. That's like that makes everybody feel good. But we don't want everybody just going out and doing whatever they want to do, right? Like you got you to gotta do right. You got to live right. Like what about holiness? What about pursuing God and then living for him? Well, Jesus didn't leave that out. Look at what he says here in verse 11. She said, no one, sir. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought it didn't matter. I thought that Jesus had already forgiven. He has. Look at the order that he did this. And it's so important to catch the order of this because this is the part that we get wrong all too often in Christian circles, particularly when we're dealing with people who aren't living up to our standards. Look at the order. He says, I don't condemn you either. Now, go and sin no more. He didn't say, if you promise that you will go and sin no more, if you'll get your act together, if you'll get your life right, if you'll get straightened up, if you'll be in church at least five out of the next six Sundays, then I won't condemn you. He didn't say that. He said, go and sin no more after he had forgiven her. Why? Because the scripture teaches that it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. People don't experience the grace of God as a result of their repentance. That, that, that's, it's not something that you, you have to repent of your sin and then you experience the grace of God. No, 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 no. God's grace is offered to you freely and then you're given the opportunity to repent of your sin. The fact that you have the chance to repent, the fact that you have the chance to accept what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf is an act of grace because God has already extended it to you and you didn't deserve it. He says, go and sin no more, but don't go and sin no more because you're trying to earn approval. 
because you're trying to earn forgiveness, because you've got this weight on your shoulder of trying to live right, trying to do right, trying to straighten up and walk clean. Because that's just another way. You just traded one weight for another. No, go and sin no more is an opportunity to live in a way that you, could know, you couldn't live before. Go and sin no more is an opportunity to go and live in the freedom found in Christ rather than the bondage found in sin. See, Jesus knew what all too many of us know from firsthand experience, and that is that sin comes prepackaged with a penalty. It always does. Whenever we begin to live life according to our standards rather than live life the way that God created us to live, it always comes with consequences that we wish we didn't have to experience and we wouldn't have to experience them if we didn't have sin in our life. And Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to measure up to some standard. I've already been the standard bearer on your behalf. I'm asking you to go and live a life of freedom. Go and sin no more. You were bound under the weight of your sin before. And I want to set you free so that you can go and experience what other people don't have the opportunity to experience. The system of the Old Testament law says when you sin, you break God's law. The system that Jesus put in place for us is when you sin, you break God's heart because he knows that it breaks you. And God wants to set you and me free from living that way. Here's what I'm convinced of this morning. I'm convinced that many of you walked in this room feeling one of two ways. Feeling like that you had to measure up to some standard of living because you bear the name of Jesus. And carrying the weight of that on your shoulders and trying all week last week to live up to that standard. And failing over and over and over again. And walking in here this morning, you're frustrated at your own inability to live up to that standard. And then some of you are in a completely different camp. Some of you know you can't measure up to that standard, and so you walked in just feeling guilty because you just said, screw it, at some point last week. I'm just going to do my own thing, live my own way, because I'm just not good enough. And God didn't save you, rescue you, redeem you to live a life of frustration or a life of guilt. He saved you to set you free. When you mess up, know this, that mess up, is paid for. You don't walk under the burden of that weight anymore. Does God want you to continue in sin? No, he wants to draw you closer to himself so that you become more like his son, so that you begin to live under his standard, under his way of living, because he wants to offer you the best possible way to live. But when you fail, he's not there saying, well, dump on you, dump on you, dump on you. He's there with an extended hand saying, come on, I got this, even when you don't. And when the rest of the world says, you're in adultery, you you broke the law of Moses, you screwed up, you screwed up, you screwed up, you screwed up. The only guy who has the right to say you screwed up is down on his knees picking you up and saying, I don't condemn you. Dust yourself off. Come on, let's go and sin. No more. That's a better way to live. And some of you, you've never heard that. Some of you have been raised in church 
for years and you've never heard the fact that Jesus came to rescue you, redeem you, and set you free from feeling like you had to measure up. Maybe you've walked aisles. Maybe you've said prayers. Maybe you've even been baptized in a church before. But you've never lived in the freedom of a relationship with God that wasn't contingent on your behavior, but contingent on the work that Jesus has done on the cross on your behalf. And maybe for the first time this morning, you need to experience that kind of gospel, that kind of grace. Maybe for the first time this morning, you need to say, okay, if that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I'm in to experience that relationship on a daily basis so I'm not carrying the weight of this life on my shoulders. You want to know why Job, all throughout the book, never wavered in his faith and trust in God? It's because no matter how bad life got, he knew he was never the one responsible for carrying the weight of it on his shoulders, that there was a God who loved him, who cared about him, who passionately pursued him and one day would make things right you can have that same relationship 